Right, well, if you have a, a Bible there with you, if you want to turn to Mark's Gospel, chapter 8. Our sermon text today is Mark 8, verses 22 to 26. It's a rather short passage. And as is our custom, out of respect for the Word of God, I'll invite you, if you're able to do so, to stand for the reading of God's Word. Mark chapter 8, verses 22 to 26. Give ear to the reading of God's Word. And they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again. And he opened his eyes, his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home, saying, Do not even enter the village. This ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated this morning. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray and ask God to give us eyes to see and ears to hear his word this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for all of it, that it's all given by inspiration of your spirit, and it's all profitable for us to build us up in our most holy faith and make us able to do and ready to do every good work that you have prepared for us. We ask today that you would, even as your text suggests, that you would uh, give us eyes to see and ears to hear, work in us by your spirit that we might understand your word clearly, know you uh, more uh, according to your word, understand what you've done for our salvation, and be more equipped to live for your will. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, uh, we are right around the halfway point of, of Mark's gospel, as we've mentioned before. Um, and we are kind of uh, at a point, the next text that we look at, uh, verse 29 of this chapter, is Peter's great confession of Jesus as the Christ. Uh, and it's not an accident that it's there in the middle of the book. It's kind of the, the turning point of the entire book, so to speak. Um, it's outside of the actual death and resurrection of Christ. That confession of Peter is, is kind of the high watermark uh, of, of the gospel. And so we're going to see in some ways this kind of odd miracle that we're going to see is kind of preparatory for getting us ready uh, to see that and to see the importance of that confession of Jesus as the Christ. Now, uh, miracles in and of themselves, by definition, are, are somewhat strange. Uh, they are out of the ordinary. If they're not, or if they're ordinary, it's not really a miracle, right, to say the least. Uh, but in this short passage that we're looking at today, we find something that might strike you as a little bit odd as kind of a uh, strange miracle as miracles go. Um, here in our passage, uh, we see the Lord Jesus healing a man of blindness and restoring his sight to him. Now, that's not an odd miracle for Jesus to do, is it? Um, it's not the only time that he does that in the scripture. It's not even the only time he does that in Mark's gospel. Uh, later on in Mark chapter 10, we're going to see him heal uh, another man uh, of blindness so it's not just this one time. Um, what makes this particular miracle a little bit strange or odd, at least to our perception of it, is the fact that it did not take place instantly. I don't know if you've, you've probably read it a thousand times before. Maybe you haven't. But maybe as you were reading, you thought, oh, did Jesus have a bad day? You know, is there a reason that he had to lay hands twice? Was, did he have a look of frustration on his face? Like, didn't, why isn't this working? You know, uh, what, what, was the, what was the problem? Uh, as we're going to see, it, it was something of a gradual or maybe a two-step process of this healing, if I can use that kind of a phrase. 
one writer notes the following. He says, the healing of the blind man of Bethsaida is the only miracle in the Gospels that proceeds in stages rather than being instantaneously effective. I think he's right. It's the only one I can think of. It's the only miracle in the New Testament that Jesus did in his earthly ministry that didn't happen right away when he either spoke the words, laid hands, or whatever he, he did. Jesus performed a lot of miracles. You know, the, the Gospels don't, they, they can't contain them all. The Gospel of John, uh, towards the end of the Gospel of John, he says something like, you know, this is not a quote, but, you know, Jesus did many other miraculous signs that are not recorded in this book, but these ones, the ones I recorded, are written that you might believe. Uh, the Gospel of Mark, Mark often summarizes, right? When he, in the early chapters, he'd go to a town and it would say, you know, there was so, much, so many people coming to be healed that there was no room at the door. The whole town was coming out and bringing out their sick and their demon-possessed and their suffering for Jesus to heal. Uh, so he healed many, many, many people. Um, now, sometimes Jesus spoke the word. He just said it, and the healing happened. Sometimes he just spoke the word. Sometimes he wasn't even physically present when he healed someone. Go your way, your daughter is made whole. He doesn't even have to go to the house to do it. Many times in the Gospel of Mark, he lays his hands on the people that he heals. Other times he doesn't. Um, more than once in the Gospel of Mark, as strange as it probably sounds to our ears, he used spit. We would probably not prefer that in our day, but, but he used that more than once. Uh, the point being that Jesus doesn't always do things the same way in every case. We, we, we do not read in the Gospels, or in the Gospel of Mark in particular, a program or a, uh, some kind of a, a technique. Jesus didn't do things that way. Probably didn't want people to be able to try to copy him. Of course, nobody's going to copy the spit thing, right? But uh, he, he doesn't use technique. He's not dependent upon a particular technique. You know, in, but in every other instance in the Gospels, including the Gospel of Mark, when Jesus healed someone, it took place immediately. That's Mark's favorite word. It took place at once, except this one. There must be a, a reason for it. There must be something significant to that. There had to be a reason for it, maybe to teach the disciples and therefore to teach us as well something that's rather important. Uh, Lord willing, we're going to see this morning uh, at least three things from our text. We're going to see Jesus give sight to the blind man in our text. We're going to see Jesus give sight to blind men. And we're going to lastly see that Jesus enlightens the eyes of believers as well. So the first thing I'm going to look at and take some time to examine is basically the miracle itself that we find in our text, that the Lord Jesus gives sight to the blind man in particular and restores his sight. In verse 22, Mark writes, uh, And they came to Bethsaida. Remember, Jesus is kind of traveling all over the place. Uh, moving target is harder to hit. It's kind of the theme uh, in this part of Mark's gospel, he, they came to Bethsaida and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. So here we go again. Everywhere the Lord Jesus went, people seemed to bring out their sick, their suffering, their demon possessed to him for help. And as you see in the Gospel of Mark, do you ever see in the Gospels or in the Gospel of Mark in particular, do you ever see someone coming to Jesus for mercy and being turned away? Not once, not once in Scripture. People turn themselves away. They, they hear the message sometimes and they reject him, as they still do today. But he never once turns someone away who comes to him 
for mercy in faith. Well, in verses 23 and 24, Mark tells us kind of the, the first stage of this man's healing. It says he took and he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people, but they looked like trees walking. So here's what Jesus does. First, he spits in his eyes laid his hands on him and then asked him if he saw anything. Now that, even that question itself, why do you think Jesus asked that question? Was, did, was Jesus asking because he didn't know? It, it seems to kind of presuppose uh, on, on Jesus' part that the healing was not going to be instantaneous. Usually you wouldn't have him ask that. He would lay hands, say the word, whatever, and the person would be healed, and he might tell him, hey, don't tell anybody or something, in this case, he says, do you see, what do you see? And the man says, I've seen men as trees walking. So Jesus seems to be assuming that the man could not yet see completely clearly. The man said he could see, but he saw men like trees walking. And what this shows us, among other things, is the man hadn't been born blind. The first thing he ever saw, was he didn't see men and wonder what they were. He didn't see trees and wonder what they, what they were. He knew what a tree kind of looked like. So he wasn't born blind. He knew what trees looked like. And his vision, though, now was restored, but it wasn't restored all the way. It was kind of blurry or unclear, to say the least. I don't know if you've ever done this, maybe when you were a kid. I know I used to do this. Have you ever tried on somebody else's eyeglasses? Maybe your eyes, especially if your eyes are perfectly fine. You've got 20-20 vision or something approaching that. But you have a friend who's got the proverbial Coke bottles, you know, that you, you wouldn't want to put them near uh, the sun too, too clearly. You know, you might burn something if you held it against something with the sun shining, shining through it. Well, what happens when you put them on? Usually it hurts your eyes. You know, I, yeah, I've done it before, and you're like, ow, what in the world? And you, hold, you have to hold them away from your eyes and rub your eyes, and it kind of hurts. And, and what does it do? It makes everything not more clear, but just the opposite, more blurry. You see people like trees walking all of a sudden, and you don't want to wear those glasses anymore. The same glasses that might help one person don't exactly help somebody else. Well, you've got to think that this is probably something like what this man experienced at the first stage of his healing. Well, Jesus thankfully doesn't say, hey, it's better than it was. Good luck. Go home, you know, make sure you, you know, watch your step. Maybe walk with a cane and, and tap around. Um, in verses 25 to 26, Mark says, then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again. And he opened his eyes, and his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home, saying, Do not even enter the village. If you're looking at the King James, it adds a note uh, about not saying anything. Now, either way, some texts include that part of the verse, and some do not. But I think either way you take it, when he says to the man, Do not even enter the village, that's what he's saying. He took him out of the village to heal him, and now he's telling him, basically, Go home. Don't publicize this. Don't run around town. I can see. Look what you now. You'd feel sympathetic for the man if he did just that. Uh, but we're in a section of the gospel where Jesus seems to be constantly telling people to keep it down. Right? We don't know. We don't always understand why that is. It sounds strange to us. You'd think he'd want people to, you know, start the parade and get get people all whipped up into getting attention to him. But that was not what he was looking to do at this uh, time. So. Jesus twice laid hands on him. And then what happened? It says his sight, verse 25, was fully restored and he saw everything clearly. No more men as trees walking. 
finally. Now, why did Jesus have to lay hands on him twice? Maybe that question's not even phrased correctly. Did Jesus have to lay hands on him at all? No. But why did he lay his hands on him twice? Was he somehow lacking in power that day? Did he have to do it twice? Uh, no, that's not the reason. There's at least a couple things for you and I to consider here with this, this account. First, that we've already, already seen, Jesus doesn't do everything the same way every time. He doesn't have to. Again, he doesn't have to touch anyone. But remember what they asked him to do. They didn't just come up and say, Jesus, you know, beg him, Jesus, heal this man. They specifically begged him to lay his, to touch him. And so what does he do? He could have said, I can do whatever I want. But no, he showed mercy on the man and touched him twice for good measure. Jesus is free then as now to heal people in whatever way he sees fit. He's the Lord. He gets to call the shots. In fact, as we're going to see in a couple chapters from now, I believe Dan actually preached on this text a while back, uh, the healing of blind Bartimaeus in Mark chapter 10, Jesus never laid a hand on him. He healed him with a word. Didn't, didn't touch him that we know of at all. He just said the word and the man's sight was restored. And there in Mark, he says, verse 52, and immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. So here, laying hands twice, and then after that, he's healed. Bartimaeus, he just says the word, and right away his sight is restored. Now, Mark doesn't really offer us any comment, any explicit comment or explanation for why this took place, how to take twice, or why it took twice, Jesus laying his hands on him. But the context, I think we're going to see, offers us some help in understanding the significance of it. And that's going to lead us into our next two points, the first of which being Jesus gives sight to blind men. This isn't a one-time thing where he gave sight to one man and that is all there is to it. Jesus still gives sight to blind men. In other words, he still does so today. Maybe not the way in the text. Now, I'm, I'm not here referring primarily to the restoration of sight, of physical sight, to those who are blind in this life. Jesus can do that if he wants. Jesus can do whatever he wants. I don't believe that we in the church today are to expect that kind of thing in our day. I don't think we are to expect uh, pastors, certainly not myself, to have the gifts, the sign gifts of healings. Uh, Jesus may still effect miraculous healings however he sees fit, uh, but I do not believe scripturally they are the norm for us, nor are we to expect them to be the norm. What were those kinds of healing gifts intended for in the first place? The New Testament in 2 Corinthians 12, 12 calls them signs of a true apostle. In other words, what were they for? Those, those miracles were to echo or be a reflection of the same miracles Jesus did. And why was that? And who was it restricted to? The apostles. And why were the apostles given the ability by the Holy Spirit to do those things? It was to authenticate the gospel, to show people this is that, that their message was the same as Christ, which was the same as the Old Testament, and to show people the power of the gospel and that this was really the word and the message of God, that Jesus really was the Christ, the Son of God, and the apostles were true in what they were preaching, that salvation was to be found in him. Now, we have the completed canon of Scripture in our day, and we have for quite some time, and that message of the Bible, the full Old and New Testaments, has been fully authenticated as genuine and from the Lord. 
We don't need any more signed miracles to authenticate the scripture. We have the scripture. You might remember Jesus gave a parable once about uh, two men who had died, Lazarus and a rich man. And what did Jesus say when, when Lazarus, or not when the rich man rather, the unnamed rich man, says, you know, send, send, you know, send Lazarus back to warn my brothers. And what, is, what does Abraham tell him? No, it's like they have the scriptures. Let them believe the scriptures because even if someone ri- you know, rises from the dead, they won't believe if they don't believe the Bible, basically. Miracles do not engender faith. Only God can do that. And the scripture alone, the word of God, is powerful and active and able to do that when God intends it. Well, this, this gradual healing or restoration of the man's sight, the blind man's sight, I think, gives us a picture or an analogy of sorts of the way that Jesus works in the lives of people. Maybe the most important sense, even more so than a physical healing and restoration of sight, when a person is born again, made alive from the dead, by the Spirit of God, their eyes, spiritually speaking, are open for the very first time. That's what we sing about, and we're going to sing about as our closing hymn in John Newton's beloved hymn, Amazing Grace. The first verse, I'll try not to sing it, uh, but Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. That's our testimony, too. That's not just the blind man here in Mark 8 or Mark 10 or anybody that's had their sight restored, that's, that's your testimony if you're a believer in Christ. You used to be blind as a bat, and now you see. You used to know nothing of spiritual things, truly, and now that has changed. It's a lot like the Apostle Paul in his conversion back in Acts chapter 9. Now, it's a little bit odd and maybe ironic what happened to him on the Damascus Road. Well, he was blinded, but in being blinded, his eyes were open, weren't they? Physically speaking, he had scales over his eyes and he couldn't see for a time. But in his blindness, he finally saw things for the first time. He saw the risen and ascended Christ and was converted by the grace and mercy of God. Now, some of you, no doubt, I have no doubt, you have been believers, many of you since childhood, since as far far back as you can possibly remember, Maybe you were raised in a godly Christian home where the Bible was read and believed and you were prayed for. Maybe you were raised because of that in a Bible-believing church. I hope that's the case for many of you. And so throughout your childhood and your, your formative years, you were taught the scripture. All those years, you know, if so, you, you may be sitting here this morning and you may not have any recollection of what it was like to be spiritually dead and blind to the things of God. You may never know a day that you can recall that you didn't know the Lord. If so, praise God for it. Your sight, having the eyes to see the truth of God's word, uh, it's, even then, it's just as much God-given as it is anyone else's. If you were raised in the faith and you've known the Lord as far as you knew all your days and you've, you, you haven't been blind that you know of at all, um, even that is by the grace of God and is no, no accident. It's nothing inherent in yourself or in your family. Maybe some of you are sitting here this morning and you came to faith later in life. I know that's the case for, for some of you, sometimes much later than life. Maybe as an adult, maybe as an older adult. Maybe then, maybe you do remember what it was like at the hour you first believed. You thought you knew before, but you, knew, you didn't know anything. You thought you could see before, and all of a sudden you really saw things the way they were for the very first 
time. You finally at that point understood who God is, or at least something true of who God is, that he's your creator. You finally understood your sin, at least some measure of it. You understood the eternal peril and danger that you were in because your sins had cut you off from a holy God. Most importantly still, you finally then understood who the Lord Jesus Christ is, his death for sinners, his resurrection from the dead. On the third day, you came to know in some measure there was mercy and forgiveness to be found in him. And so you turned from your sins by God's mercy and grace and came to him by faith for salvation in Christ. That's what theologians often call effectual calling. Maybe you've never heard that phrase before. If you have not, I will give you a definition for it. Effectual calling, Shorter Catechism 31, defines it as this. Effectual calling is the work of God's Spirit, the Holy Spirit, convincing or convicting, convincing us of our sin and misery, enlightening our minds in the knowledge of Christ, renewing our wills he does persuade and enable us to embrace Jesus Christ freely offered to us in the gospel. That's a lot. That's effectual calling. That's the work of God in the conversion of one sinner. That's what happens in some regard every time someone comes to Christ by faith. Why is that a gracious work of God's spirit? Why is a gracious work of God's spirit necessary in the first place for anyone, including you or I, to be saved by believing in the gospel? It's because on our own, outside of Jesus Christ, we are all dead in sin. Outside of Christ, you and I, are all blind to the truth of God. We are blind. Every bit spiritually as blind as a man who's born blind or can't see with his physical eyes. 1 Corinthians 4, verses 3 to 4, Paul writes this. He says, and, if our go- and even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Not only are unbelievers not uh, able to see on their own, they have someone working against them to make sure it stays that way. On your own, outside of Christ, you cannot believe. You will not believe. Why? Satan, the God of this world, Paul calls him, has blinded your eyes if you're not yet in Christ. Dead in your sin, enslaved to sin under the influence of, as Paul says in Ephesians, the prince of the power of the air, and he calls him the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Are are you or anyone dead in your sins outside of Christ stronger than Satan? Are you able to overcome his influence on your own? No, no one is. Are you stronger than he is? Certainly not. Can the blind heal themselves? Jesus sort of mockingly talked about the blind leading the blind. This is what he's talking about. It's hopeless. Outside of Christ, outside of the grace of God, it is a hopeless situation. We are all outside of Christ, as hopeless as a blind man could be. So what hope do you have? What hope do we have? Your only hope, our only hope, is in the sovereign grace and mercy of, of of the Lord. You need the almighty spirit of God to convict you of your sin In misery, do you see your sin for what it is? Do you see that you've broken God's holy law in more ways than you can ever begin to count or comprehend? 
Do you see that your sins have cut you off from a holy God and placed you in danger of eternal judgment? If so, the only reason for that is that God has intervened. Do you see that your biggest problem in your life is not your circumstances? It's not other people. It's not other people's sins or shortcomings around you, but your own sins against God. That is our number one problem. Do you see who Christ is more and more? Do you see all that he has done for the salvation of sinners? Do you see the truth of the Bible that Jesus Christ is God's only begotten son who laid aside his glory and became incarnate as a man, humbling himself even to the point of death on a cross? And why would he do that? To pay the penalty that we deserve for our rebellion and sin against a holy God. Do you see the truth of scripture that the Lord Jesus Christ rose from the dead on the third day? And most importantly, do you see that there is mercy and grace for salvation offered freely in the gospel in the name of Christ? If so, if you see that, that's the grace of God at work. That's his spirit opening the eyes of the blind. If you're not yet a believer in Christ this morning, May God in his almighty power and grace be pleased to give sight to the blind and work in you by his spirit that you may finally see clearly for the first time and that you might have your will renewed, that you might be able to turn to Christ by faith for salvation as he's freely offered in the gospel. Jesus still does that today. Every time someone comes to faith in Christ for salvation, he's the one that's doing that. He's the one that's giving sight to the blind. We can't do that. I can preach all day long. I won't. Until uh, I'm blue in the face. And I can't create faith. You can't create faith. But God can. And God does. And that brings us to our third point. Our final point is that Jesus not only gives sight to blind men. In their salvation and in their conversion. He also gradually enlightens the eyes of believers. After giving them sight. This man is kind of a picture of the Christian life. And a lot of. Ways There is most often a gradual opening of our spiritual sight and understanding. And we can see in the early chapters of Mark's gospel uh, such a thing. Earlier in this exact chapter, actually, in chapter 8 of Mark's gospel, what do you see Jesus asking his disciples? Remember, they're in the boat. They're arguing about, he says, beware of the leaven, you know, of of the Pharisees and Herodians. And what do they say? They start arguing about bread. Oh, he's mad because we forgot to bring bread. And Jesus says in Mark 8, 17 to 18, to the disciples, mind you, the future apostles, do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear and do you not remember? When you hear him say to the the blind man, you know, do you see anything? We should be hearing an echo of his question in the boat to disciples. Having eyes, do you not see? Sometimes it seems like we don't, even after knowing Christ for years. They were often slow to understand, right? That seems to be the theme of the first half of Mark. Sometimes the disciples just kind of don't get it. Jesus is explaining to them in private the things he's, he's saying and doing. Well, in Mark 8.29, just past the, the passage that we're in this morning, when Jesus asked the disciples who they thought he was, what did Peter say? Peter goes from Jesus saying, don't you see anything? To to, to Peter saying, you are the Christ. Seeing as clear as a bell, as clear as he could possibly see, that confession of Christ as the Messiah, it's at the center point of Mark's gospel. It's one of the key moments. It's one of the, the main truths of the entire gospel of Mark. 
So Peter, what do we see here just in this one chapter? You see Peter's eyes, kind of that dimmer switch being, being turned up. He's starting to see things. He's finally starting to get the point after a long time following along with Christ. Uh, but what happens just a few verses later in the gospel, in chapter 8? Mark 8.33, what does Jesus end up telling, telling Peter? Get behind me, Satan! It, it, the, the, the mood swing in this chapter couldn't be, couldn't be bigger. Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. That's a pretty remarkable... And thankfully, he doesn't, doesn't do away with Peter right then and there. And it's not the last time Peter's going to have a slip-up or have a difficulty in understanding. And think about whose gospel this is. Mark, Mark is basically giving us Peter's version, Peter's account of the gospel. Peter must have been a very humble man by God's grace and the work of his spirit as an apostle to not hide his own failings in this gospel. It kind of had, it gives it's one more thing that gives the Bible that ring of truth. We wouldn't have written it that way. If I was the one behind that gospel, you can bet I wouldn't be uh, including the last part of chapter 8. I would have said, you are the Christ, bingo. Good job, Peter the first pope, right? He's not the first pope. Um, yeah, well, Sinclair Ferguson says of this miracle that we're looking at this morning that it was a sign, that it's a sign for the disciples. He says, their spiritual understanding, he writes, did not come instantaneously, but gradually. They, too, needed the second touch from the hands of their master. Now, he's not talking about a second blessing or, you know, what are the, what are the Pentecostals are, are, are fond of doing. He's not talking about stages in your salvation we do not believe in stages of salvation. If you're in Christ, you are every bit as justified as any other believer in Christ, including the apostles themselves. Uh, but it's, it's a, the idea of Christ being at work in you by his spirit over time is what we're talking about here. Listen, listen to uh, the prayer the Apostle Paul writes down for the believers in the, in the book of Ephesus in Ephesians 1, verses 15 to 23. This is Paul telling these believers in Ephesus how he prayed for them. They already, they already know the Lord. He's not, he's not evangelizing in the sense of, of writing to a bunch of lost folks. He's writing to the church, and he says this is how he prayed for them. This should be a model as well as for how we could pray for each other. He says, for this reason, because I have heard of your faith. Their eyes are open, right? I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus, Ephesians 1.15, and your love toward all the saints. Does Paul have any doubt of their salvation whatsoever, of their genuineness of their conversion? No. He says, for, for this reason, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in all or remembering you in my prayers. And then he tells them what he's praying for for them. Here it is, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet 
and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Paul has a way of jamming a thousand pages of theology into one short paragraph and into his prayers. But look what he prays. I mean, look, just look at what he prays. He knew their eyes were open, and what does he do? He prays that God would, uh, that the eyes of their hearts would be enlightened. Verse 18. And enlightened for what? And this should be something we, we pray for for ourselves and for each other, that, uh, that they might understand the greatness of the hope to which they were called in Christ, that they might understand and see the riches of the inheritance in him. Verse 18, that they might know the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. Verse 19, who doesn't need that? Do we, if we struggle with anything, do we not struggle with losing sight of those very things? When you get discouraged in this life, when things get hard, when affliction or persecution raise their ugly heads, what more do you need than to know the the greatness of the hope to which you've been called in Christ or the riches of the inheritance that you have waiting for you? The persecuted church needs to know that, and we do as well. How about the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? He even says... How great is the power that is at work in you, not only that brought you to faith in the first place, but at work in you now. The same almighty power that raised Christ from the dead and seated him at the right hand of God is the same power that worked in you to open your eyes if you're a believer and can open the eyes of unbelievers even now. J.C. Ryle writes of this miracle. He says, this, this miracle, this is the history of thousands of God's children. They begin with seeing men as trees walking. They end with seeing all things clearly. Happy is he who has learned this lesson well and humble and is humble and distrustful of his own judgment. We should see a little bit of ourselves in this miracle if you're a believer in Christ this morning. And isn't it good? Isn't it an encouragement? I hope it is to you to see the, the kindness and the patience of the Lord Jesus with us who are his flock. He is a kind and gentle shepherd in his dealings with his sheep who are slow to understand and prone to wander. How many of us are even now finding that after years and years of knowing the Lord, of studying his word and reading it and and hearing the word preached, that we're still learning and coming to understand a great many things that we would think now, I'm just now getting this? In my younger days, much younger days, I, I thought I knew quite a bit. It took a while for God to show me what I don't know. There's a lot that I didn't know. I used to think I was much wiser than my elders. Well, that was foolish, wasn't it? Many of us have that same kind of attitude when we're in our younger days. And the Lord, in his mercy and grace and kindness, cures us of that over, over time. Now, there's, there are a great many things that we need to come to understand, that we need to grow in our grasp of God's work in our lives, of our salvation, his will for your life as believers, even uh, you know, after years and years, we still need to learn this. We still need to learn more about the Lord, about who God is and what he's done for our salvation. In 1 Corinthians 13, verse 12, Paul writes this. He says, For now, now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part. He doesn't say he doesn't know. He says, I know in part. Uh, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. We know things truly now, but we're really going to know them when we see Christ face to face. So let us be patient with each other as well. 
Uh, how many of us come into the Lord but see things somewhat unclearly like that man in our text? We see men like trees walking. You know, we think we see, but we don't really see things the way that we will. We all need to have our minds renewed by the word of the Lord. None of us are finished products in this life. Even the Apostle Paul in Philippians said, not that I've attained, but I press forward. Well, if Paul had to press forward, I dare say all of us need to do so as well. So let us be thankful for the Lord's patience and mercy towards us and for his continual work of illumination and sanctification in our lives and the lives of our fellow believers in the church. And be encouraged, Jesus still gives sight to the blind and he still enlightens the eyes of of the hearts of his people, giving us eyes to see more and more till the day that we see him face to face. Amen. Let's, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your, your goodness towards us, and we thank you that you, in your mercy, uh, those of us who know you and are in Christ by faith, that, that outside of your mercy and grace and power, none of that would ever come to pass. We would still be wandering around blind as bats, Blind, leading the blind, being led around by the blind, not ever coming to the truth, not ever turning to Christ. And we thank you for your mercy and kindness and grace that you opened our eyes and you made us alive from the dead, that we might know you and might know uh, the glory of Christ and the gospel and might have some grasp of the hope to which we've been called in him, the inheritance that you have given us that awaits us uh, one day when we are with you forever in heaven and also the greatness of the power that's at work in us who believe. We thank you for these things. We ask that you would enlighten the eyes of our hearts, that we might understand and grasp and live in the light of those things more and more. And we do pray, as always, that if there's anyone here this morning that does not yet know you, has not yet had their eyes opened, that you might do that even this morning, that you might open the eyes of the blind, give sight to the blind, that they might see their sin, be convicted of it, they might understand Uh, who Christ is, what he has done for their salvation. They might know and grasp and believe that there's mercy and grace to be found, forgiveness to be found in Christ for those who turn and come to him by faith. We pray that you would make that happen even among us today and that you would do that for our unsaved uh, family, friends, and loved ones, that uh, you would let us see you at work bringing about repentance and faith, opening the eyes of the blind to the glory of Christ, for it's in his name we pray. Amen.